morning. Welcome to the Lowdown, the first in what probably will be many, many daily shows we're going to dedicate to giving you information related to the COVID-19 outbreak and its effect here on Kodiak. Uh, this is intended to be like Dragnet Radio, just the facts, ma'am. We're not here to rewrite history, cast blame, or veer into speculation. We want to deliver you the facts as we know them to be from experts who have direct knowledge or of some aspect of Kodiak life, and as you'd probably surmise, there is a ton of people out there who can contribute to the discussion, so we're going to try and bring people in as quickly as possible. We may even add another hour to the show later in the week or add another hour later in the day to accommodate people's guest schedules. Uh, we're going to start off taking questions by phone or email only. Email your comments and questions to lowdown at kmxt.org or news at kmxt.org, or you can call our regular number, 486-3181. We'll try and get your question into a particular guest during this show. We have guests lined up for tomorrow and Wednesday and are working on a list for the next few weeks. If you have suggestions on who you'd like to hear or what topics you'd like addressed, please get in touch with us. Now, without further ado, here is the lowdown. Before I bring in the guests, a couple of announcements related to the COVID-19. As of March 13th, state officials confirmed the first case in Alaska. In addition to proper hygiene, we're recommending community members be familiar with the Center for Disease Control and Prevention's guidance on social distancing. Stay home if you're sick with a respiratory illness. If you develop a fever, remain home for 24 hours after the fever subsides. Stay at least six feet away from people who are coughing, sneezing, or feeling feverish. People who are sick or have concerns about someone else should first call Public Health 211 or the Providence Nurse Hotline at 212-6183 and follow their instructions. They're recommending that people avoid large gatherings or crowded places as much as possible. Businesses should consider implementing methods to limit close personal conduct until further information is available. Consider using video conferencing for meetings when possible or hold a meeting in an open, well-ventilated space. Assess the risks associated with air traffic. We encourage liberal leave policies or telecommuting options for staff when appropriate or available. Check the CDC for further information. Out of a ma an abundance of caution in an effort to maximize the health and safety of students, staff, and the community of Kodiak, all Kodiak Island Borough School District community youth facilities are now closed until further notice. That includes the gym, the pool, and the school, and the auditorium. Visit the district website for frequent information as the situation involves. If you have questions, call Parks and Rec, Corey Ground, 486-8665, or the superintendent's office, 486-7550. The pool is closed, the teen center is closed, the ice rink are closed. The borough is now implementing the follow socially, social distancing me measures to minimize the impact of the virus should it arrive here. The public is asked to conduct all borough business via telephone, email, postal mail, or the drop boxes in the lower parking lot at 710 Mill Bay Road. The entrance to the borough building will be limited to the main door where visitors will be met and advised with appropriate instructions for accomplishing 
borough and city business from afar. The touch tank building is closed. An emergency ordinance to allow teleconference participation by assembly members and the public at regular meetings will be considered on March 19th. School activities canceled. Arts Council activities canceled. Travel restrictions are, have also been changed, as you might have heard today. So without that, uh, let's go right into our two guests for today. Larry Ledoux from the Kodiak Island Borough School District and Carol Osterman um, from the Public Community Health Center. Welcome. Thank you both for coming in today. Larry, let's start with you. People in the community are well familiar with who you are, but for those who may be tuning in for the first time, you're the superintendent of schools for the Kodak Island School District. That's correct. And uh, in regards to the COVID-19 virus, um, what what's your role specifically in regards to that for the school district? Well, my first priority has always been at any time of the year, is to ensure that our students and our staff are safe. Education is really secondary. So during the COVID crisis, it's just a matter of moving or increasing the priority on safety. Um, We're always concerned with education, and we're going to be spending a lot of time trying to ensure that uh, during the COVID crisis that education of our youngsters and our young people is still ongoing and productive. So in in terms of emergency services preparation, you're not in that closed loop, right? Well, I I am an invited member, and uh, we had a meeting today. And uh, you leave meetings like that uh, feeling very confident that the right people are in the right place doing their jobs to ensure the safety of the community. I think that uh, any council is only as good as our ability to communicate with one another and to communicate to the public, and I believe that um, the public is going to see that um, our community leadership is up to the challenge in Kodiak. Okay. Now, you used to be in a statewide position, so I'm interested in, in how the – are we really an island? Are the decisions that are being made in terms of how our schools are operated during this time, are, are do you get some direction from the state offices or do you make the decision on your own? I think like most organizations, the State Department of Education is gearing up to serve, you know, the 53 districts in the state of Alaska. The Kodiak School District has been preparing for this for the last two months. What's happening in the last two weeks is everything is accelerating to a pace that we really weren't prepared for. But because of earlier preparation, um, we'll be ready to respond as this crisis uh, moves forward. I don't believe it's reached its trajectory, so we're monitoring and trying to adjust our plans to fit you know, what's going on today. Is are, are you cooperating with other organizations throughout the state, other school districts, the state offices, to kind of come up with a collective plan for the whole state? Absolutely. Um, the Superintendent Association has set up teleconferences. We meet regularly. I've talked to the commissioner uh, face or person to person almost every day, um, so we're we're communicating. We're a lot smarter when we communicate and we become a crowd and share information. I think that no superintendent has all the ideas, and we're learning from each other and we're sharing. And I think it will help Kodiak in its planning efforts. So, is it fair to say that the activities are similar throughout the state through the different school districts on how they're all approaching this at the same time? 
I think they're similar to a certain extent. Kodiak is unique in that we have rural and urban schools. Uh, many districts around the state are very small, and they just have rural schools. They have challenges related to bandwidth, the availability of teachers, uh, communication, whereas urban districts, we have lots and lots of children with many different uh, needs that we have to respond to. So um, there are differences, but I think we're all um, working together to ensure that our staff and students are safe and that we can deliver uh, an education program no matter what happens. Carol, not to leave you out of the loop, um, describe what you do and how you, you're interacting or your, your knowledge in this area in regard to the virus. So I'm the executive director of the Kodiak Community Health Center. And so obviously uh, we only have a couple of larger clinics um, and only a few clinics total in the Kodiak community. And so we're right at the center of what that medical response to the crisis will be. So we're, there is a medical community group that is meeting um, every couple of days right now, and we have a, a email chain that is we're getting messages from each other pretty much every few hours. Um, that includes public health, CANA, um, the, um, and then we've got a state association as well. And so we're always just trying to figure out what's the best information and the most current information that we can share with our doctors, our clinical staff, uh, and then our patients. So there's the CANA clinic, there's you, there's Independence, there's mm-hmm. Providence, and we are all talking together. <laughs> You're all talking together. So even the the individual physician office is in the same loop. I mean, We're, you act public as own- he- public health is sharing that information back with them. Um, the the groups that have been coming together um, so far, just in this last week. We are trying every day. We're adding more people to those groups every day. Um, And so we're trying to keep that information as current as possible. We're working with the borough and and city EMS. We're working with Larry at the school district. Um, We're we're talking with the public nurses, uh, public health nurses, with the nurses from the school district. Um, We're just trying to get all the medical community to be on the same page here. You're, the pipeline comes down from where? Where's the, the the most current information that you have to work with? And is it is it dissipate? Is there three or four different ones? Why would there be different messaging? Is what I guess I'm asking. If if I'm looking for the best resource, the best knowledge that I have from the medical community right now, is it coming from one place? It is. It's coming from public health. So the State Department of Health and um, Social Services is putting out through the Department of Epidemiology notices every day. And those are coming out on the website. CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, is the other location to get that information. But part of it is disseminating that and making sure that everybody, because it is so constantly changing right now. Um, You know, CDC is putting out something pretty much every day. Um, The Department of Public Health has been updating almost every day, including over the weekend. We just saw the new travel advisories come out this morning. A, A big piece of that is how do we effectively disseminate that information to the people who are making those decisions. Uh, across our community. And so, and there are different pieces to it. There's different information and it's all public, but different information for the medical community in treatment 
um, it you know it's it's shared in a it's shared in different terminology for us. And if you even look at the Department of Public Health website right now, there's a, a page to click on if you're the public, and there's a page to click on if you're a healthcare provider. Um, and it's all you can. Everyone can see that information, or they're not trying to hide it. But it is communicated differently. Um, and so that's a piece of, of what we're working with. Um, do you, do you interact at all with the public or is your role primarily within the facility, within the, the medical community? Typically or right now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, now, typically, so typically it's not. Typically it's not, but right now I'm sitting right here uh, and on the air with you guys. <laughs> so, no, typically my role is administrative. I do not have a medical background. Um, and so, as the, but as the executive director of the community health center, I am the voice of the health center. And especially now when we have all of our clinical staff who are back at the clinic hard at work trying to prepare for this. Um, and in the actual medical side. Um, so I'm happy to be the one that's out here. I'm not going to take our medical director and put him out, you know, on the radio right now because I need him back at the clinic helping patients. Right. Mm-hmm. How are things going at the school? Well, they're going very well. Um, <clears throat> we have a great staff. Uh, their maintenance staff is working today. Our secretarial support, our business office, they're all working. They've separated themselves. The buildings are uh, locked down. Uh, Custodians are doing deep cleaning. Um, I have a great group of people serving the public, and they're fairly dedicated. My first responsibility at this point is to make sure they're safe, and we'll be having a number of safety meetings as soon as I'm um, somewhere else. Uh, We'll be communicating, so I think we're well-served. our biggest challenge right now is, you know, actually during spring break, we have administrators who are still working, trying to uh, outline um, how we're going to uh, deliver instruction to 2,300 students across the district. And then uh, next week after spring break, our teachers will be contacting parents to find the best way to support their child in this learning environment. One of the things that we've learned right away is that one size doesn't fit all people. Some people have bandwidth, some people have limited bandwidth, some people have home support, some kids do not have a lot of support. So we'll be teachers will be calling every student or family in the district next week to find out what the challenges are for that family, and then we're going to design a program to meet that child's needs. I think the biggest need in the community right now, if I were a parent with um, primary students, is to identify somebody Um, If both parents work, for instance, who can work with uh, tutor a child through their reading and activities. You know, a kindergartner is not going to follow a regimen. They have to have an adult. We'll send the materials and make it available. Um, But it'll really be parents who uh, work with the child. I think that most elementary kids could expect to get a call from their teacher or an aide every day during this process. But the real education will take place by those uh, folk supporting the child at home. So those families that have grandparents or extended families that are living with them will have an advantage. Um, It's going to be different in every case, and that's going to take a lot more work on our part, but we think it's necessary um, for education. We don't know if this 
close down will last the rest of the school year. Right. Uh, we're staying tuned. We're preparing. And our preparation, frankly, is that it may go to the end of the school year. And uh, and that's what we're working on right now. We just want to do it effectively. And again, it's different at every age level. Relatively easy at the secondary level because kids can um, read. And But on the other hand, secondary um, kids aren't very good at adhering to a schedule. And I think we'll be sending out some information, some common sense advice to parents this week about um, how to work with a child at home to make sure that they follow a schedule, that they're not on their own, because, you know, kids are kids. Kids are kids. And uh, we build our program around that point of view. And uh, so we're spending a lot of time thinking about that and um, how we can do a good job and serve the public. And it's new. Uh, as I said, the the trajectory of this disease was moving very slowly, and we've been working on it for a couple of months. And now it's... It's, everything's happened really fast in a week, so we're struggling to catch up. Yeah. I have a specific question from a listener. They're wondering if kids at the middle school can transition to AK Teach instead of uh, completing their remaining work distance delivered uh, using a normal class, class classroom curriculum. How would it work in terms of transcripts and credit for coursework for the year? Well, there's a lots of um, thought on that. What we do, um, other districts around the state will face the same challenge. But our first um, concern is that whatever we do will do no harm. Um, you know, we're thinking about what do we do about graduation, um, those activities that kids have been involved with. But in terms of um, enrolling in AK Teach, we don't have the staff there to um, take on those kinds of clients, but many were going to be using their expertise to help train teachers so that they could emulate that. So what parents can expect to see is, uh, is uh, I don't know, if you will, um, a set of educational materials, if you will, that students can engage in, and if, which is similar to what AK Teach does. AK Teach is a, or the AK Teach homeschool is a home-based program that parents are directly involved in what's going on. We'll be emulating that, but to move kids into the AK Teach program would interrupt the program that those students are currently involved with and overwhelm the teacher. So we're using that teacher to help us train uh, parents to act in that capacity. As far as transcripts go, I don't believe there'll be any delay. Um, it's not our intent to uh, extend the school year into the summer. That's why we're working hard to deliver a program and so as far as grades, as far as transcripts, um, we'll be able to keep up with that. Carol, I want to ask you a question about capacity. Um, you, you work with people in the medical profession that are going to be dealing with people with potentially people with disease all the time, and they can't necessarily keep six feet away from people. I mean, what happens to our capacity when people start to go down, you know? So we are really at a huge advantage right now, specifically in Kodiak, because of our essentially isolation here. Um, and definitely in Alaska and even in the United States in that we have been able to watch what has happened internationally with this virus. So... One of the big lessons learned in this, and, and um, I think Larry had said a minute ago about flattening the curve, is that if we can figure out a way 
as a community to lessen the immediate impact of what's happening, then we will be able to, from a healthcare perspective, we will be able to utilize our resources in a way that we can care for everybody. What we do not have the capacity for on the island and really anywhere in Alaska is if we get a big spike in people who have contracted the virus. So what basically what will happen, you know, and and what is happening in, uh, in the other countries and even in Seattle and other parts of the United States now is that it's so contagious that when you get a large group of people who who are essentially spreading the the virus and then those people have to be cared for by the medical profession and then the medical providers start to you know contract the virus themselves they're out for 2 to 3 weeks when you think about the number of medical providers and clinical staff that we have across our community that number is really quite small and so we are going to be taking extreme precautions within our clinic and really within all of the medical facilities across Kodiak to try to prevent that from happening. Um, and so our our own staff will be wearing masks. Um, one of the biggest things that the community can do to help prevent that from happening is to call your medical provider first before you come into the clinic. Because part of what we're trying to do is keep people who potentially have coronavirus outside of the clinic so that they are not going to infect other people, our staff included. So how do you treat them then? Well, and so this is kind of an interesting thing about this particular virus, and this is something that we definitely want the public to understand, is that even if you have the symptoms of coronavirus, depending on many other factors, which is why it's so important to call your doctor's office, that you might be told to stay home. There's not a treatment per se for mild coronavirus. The treatment is self-isolation and that you care for yourself as you would with any other flu-like symptoms. And so you're going to stay hydrated. Um, You know, you're going to try to continue to eat and rest and those kinds of things. 90% of the people, between 80 and 90% of the people who are contracting the virus only have very mild symptoms, but they're highly contagious. And so what we're trying very hard to do is prevent those symptoms um, by being being transferred to someone who is not going to have mild symptoms, someone who has a higher risk. And then those are the sick people who then will be treated. Uh, okay, I understand. Well, and, and really what, you know, what is happening with this virus is the, that 10% or so of people who are actually getting very sick, they're getting pneumonia. And those people, the majority of those people are being hospitalized. And so there's there's a big difference between the people, that 90% and the 10%. The treatment is is pretty much opposite. One, you stay home and rest. The other one, you're hospitalized. But the the number of people that will be hospitalized, when you start looking statistically at the numbers that we're seeing both internationally and now in the U.S., um, Kodiak really doesn't have the hospital capacity to deal with that. 
And so that's the that's why it is so important for us to w- do what they're calling flatten the curve and prevent the spread of the virus at a rapid rate. If it can spread slowly, then we will have the resources here to deal with it. If it spreads quickly, we likely won't. What is our capacity? I mean, well, we we have I I believe there's 11 beds at the hospital. Um, and so here's just some statistical numbers to think about. If 100 people get the virus, that statistically means about 10 of them are going to be hospitalized. We have 14,000 people in our community. So if, if you look at how those spikes are happening in other places when there has not been containment, so really containment is our biggest goal here as a community, and that is exactly why we're really pushing social distancing so hard, um, is because even that 100 people catching the virus here fills our capacity at the hospital, statistically speaking. Larry, this is a it's kind of bad timing, isn't it, with spring break happening and a lot of your staff off? Well, uh, many districts had spring break this last week, so um, they'll be spending this next week getting ready. We're just the opposite of that. We're starting our spring break, so we have two weeks to get ready, if you will. No, but what I what I meant is with this new travel advisory today, doesn't that make it even more complicated if you have people leaving the island to now anticipate when you're going to have a full battery of teachers back able to work? Well, we're currently um, hiring subs, and we always have a contingent of subs, but we're bringing some on as staff members right now in every school. So East Elementary will have two subs that are highly trained. We'll go through the same training teachers go to to assist parents in homeschooling their child. So we're trying to anticipate that, but it's very difficult. But by training them ahead of time, um, we won't just bring in a sub off the list. We'll have a sub that's trained by that teacher or yeah. in that school to deliver instruction. It's a tough time. I wish we didn't have anybody traveling, but we're going to have to deal with that. As far as I know, no one is um, out of the country. And uh, we'll be... Um, assessing each staff member who's been off-island um, the same way they, they screen other folk at airport airports just to make sure uh, if they're sick to stay home. We've told all staff members, if you're sick, stay home. And we've told parents over and over, if your child is sick, stay home. And I think they've been doing a good job of that, and our nurses have been screening kids, and we have a lot of um, protocols in place if we do open schools to monitor uh, children and staff through our our nursing program that we have in the district. With the issue about food and child care, though, I mean, doesn't it make it more complicated the farther, the longer we keep the school closed to be able to? Well, let's just say that my my life right now is very complicated, yeah. um, and it will be. Our <laughs> first priority right now is to feed kids. We're, as we speak, we are feeding kids right now at, at the high school. Um, my other responsibilities are to uh, disseminate information to our students and parents. We have, we send out when we send out a, a global release. We send out almost seven thousand emails. So we want to communicate. We want to protect my staff that's working with kids, um, and we want to work with families to educate their kids. And most importantly, 
Um, every asset that I have is here to support the community emergency services plan. You know, we're, we fall under that, so we're going to try to figure out to carry out all those responsibilities as necessary. We're ready for that. How do you, having just heard that they closed the restaurants in, you know, a number of states already, how does that affect the food program if that kind of a directive comes here? Well, I haven't really considered, you know, community feeding. We have commercial kitchens uh, that could be set up to feed the community if necessary. But our current program right now can feed any child from 1 through 18. And it's just if they show up and they're of that age, we'll be giving them a breakfast and a lunch. Um, We're developing the distribution protocols. This week we're just distributing outside Kodiak High School uh, bag-type lunches, uh, next week, we may use our buses to deliver food to certain areas, or um, we're looking at borrowing and sanitizing some crab festival-type booths that we may put up in front of the high school, and people can drive up, uh, say who they are, and we'll pass them out a bag lunch, and away we go. Okay, you just gave me a vision of what I've seen on TV in other countries with the guys in the suits with the spray cans, you know. <laughs> Uh, it was, have you have you watched the the disinfection of your workplace? Um, yes, um, we we monitor every morning. I'm up around six, you know, going through the news to collect information. Uh, we believe that we can sanitize our schools, but they're currently locked up right now because once we sanitize them, we don't want to re-sanitize them right. every time somebody comes in and. Oh. We're prepared, you know, to carry on that function. Again, I want to keep my staff safe and our students safe. So we're we're going to be busy. You know, we ordered these particular um, sanitizing um, sprayers, if you will, and we were really lucky because the last time we checked, uh, they said you got to be kidding. Maybe sometime this summer. And really? Damon Hargraves um, found seven of them in Idaho. And they were just ready to send to us, and somebody raided their warehouse and, <laughs> and got rid of them. And so we're continuing to um, – we have the uh, enough of sanitizing spray to share with St. Mary's and the Christian school if we need to. Um, we we believe we have the right um, – we're prepared to clean our buildings, if you will, yeah. for the long term. And we've shared some of our supplies with other agencies as we can um, but, yeah, the best way to keep our kids, schools clean right now is to close them down. In fact, at the central office, um, if you want to come to the central office, um, we'll have a telephone on the outside of the building with some hand wipes. And we'll have on the door, if you want to contact this person or this person, here's their phone number, here's their email address, so that we can uh, continue to communicate actively with the public and keep our staff safe. Most schools, though, will be locked up, although... We will be posting uh, press releases on all of our building uh, doors throughout the district because it's a convenient bulletin board for people to go. And But we'll be communicating uh, any information from now on through the, uh, the Emergency Services Council because we believe it's very important that the public have one source for accurate information. Yeah. And this is particularly important in the era of Facebook when you have people fo- posting things that are not accurate or are incomplete as if they're facts. So... We think it's very, very important that we keep active, um, actively updated websites that the community can trust. And so we're working on that. And 
we're certainly working with the Emergency Services Council to ensure that whatever we post um, is vetted uh, through them. So when we do post something on our websites, it's accurate and the public can trust. Okay. Carol, where, where do you go as a trusted source for info? So if you're curious about what's happening across the international community with this, the World Health Organization is definitely where I would go, especially to do some research or to um, look at statistically what has been happening other places, people who really want to learn about this. that's a They have some phenomenal information that they have been able to put together out of China, Italy, and Iran. Um, for the United States information, the Centers for Disease Control, they have also done a fantastic job in disseminating information and, um, and having good data that then, especially the medical providers, can continue to use to determine what actions to take. And then for our state, it is the Department of Public Health, um, the Epidemiology Division. That is where the announcements are coming from about what um, what's happening within our own state, and so how many people have been tested, and if if there you know any positive cases. And as of as of before, we walked in here. I double checked, and we were still just at one for the state. Um, and then that the, if you can sign up for the alerts, actually, from the Department of Public Health, um, and you can either get those via text or via email, and they they are sending out information pretty much daily. How do you how do you control the 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 mental health component of this? Is there discussion in the medical community about that? Absolutely, and so we understand that there. Are, are a lot of people who are very afraid right now. And while we are not trying to do any kind of fear-mongering, we definitely want people to understand that this is a real outbreak um, and could have real consequences. So there's a balance there, and we definitely are wanting to continue to treat anyone who does have a mental health issue and especially, you know, who is struggling right now. So we will be continuing our mental health services, um, and, and that'll be true across the community. Pieces of that might end up being over the phone, might be um, over a, a Skype-type product, um, depending on what what our level of concern is at the time, um, and also depending on if it's a it's a patient with symptoms of coronavirus, um, and all of those things would be handled individually through your doctor's office. So, if you have any concern, if you want to get an appointment, please call us, and we will be happy to help you. Our counselors have prepared a handout that's going to pop up when people sign on to their account. Um, and counselors at the high school or in the elementary schools are sort of triage. They know families and they know the kids. And we have a very strong um, relationship with Providence Medical Mental Health Center. So um, we'll be, uh, the counselors will be on available and for, to talk to. They'll be actively communicating with students to talk about everything from uh, college prep and uh, recommendations, the things that normal high school counselors do. But they'll they'll also be able to talk with kids who have special needs who reach out to them, and then the counselors can help refer them or connect them with a mental health professional in the community. So we realize, and we have many young people that have uh, challenges 
and we it's our intent to support them to the full extent that we're available. And we'll be sending that information out to all parents so that they can call. We'll be maintaining uh, call lines in the evening for parents to access, both for technical support, because a lot of our delivery will use the Internet, uh, technical support, um, learning support, and also um, mental health or counseling services that we do. We don't do... Um, therapeutic counseling in the district. We do have a contract with the Providence Mental Health to deliver therapeutic counseling services to students to facilitate their education, but we have a great relationship to refer young people, even families that that need extra help, and we'll be working hard on that. And I really appreciate the initiative the counselors put together. They put together a whole sheet that will be sent out that lists phone numbers of where they can go for help if they need it, who to contact. So we're paying close attention to that. It's hard to monitor from a distance, though, isn't it? I mean, well, it's hard to monitor, but I think you know many of our counselors have special relationships with kids, and so do teachers. And as, if we work together, when we pick up symptoms of that, if you will, or if young people share, or if uh, parents share, or caregivers, then um, we can use those relationships, which are really real, to. Uh, help the student and be pointed in the right direction so that they can get the help that they need. It's a matter of trust, and I think that many of our teachers and counselors have that relationship. And during this break, you know, they'll be available during the day uh, to talk with kids. And that's one of the reasons we're keeping our staff on. Some jobs will not be necessary, but we're moving those folk in to help the elementary teachers, you know, communicate uh, more extensively with families. So we're going to use everybody that we can to um, do the best we can to deliver a quality education to kids, but it's going to be very difficult. I, I would imagine it's very difficult to communicate with your staff when you can't do it on a face-to-face basis. Well, we actually can communicate on a face-to-face basis. Oh, you we, can? Yeah, we have a very effective uh, low-bandwidth use um, software that we use that I could load up on my phone, and in a few minutes, you and I could be talking face-to-face, and we would be able to see you and you. Well, so you have virtual meetings, right? Yeah, you know, we can have virtual meetings, and we've had those. We're gearing up last week before break. We did training with our staff to make sure they all could use it. I'll be working with the school board because I suspect very soon we'll be having virtual meetings with the school board, and I suspect the city council and the borough assembly will be doing the same. And and that's why we'll be maintaining a tech hotline for people who uh, want to get on who haven't used that system before. But it's fairly easy to use and uh, very interactive. So um, I think we'll be ready. When we first start, everything's going to be shaky, everything. But the more we do it, the more informed people will be, and we'll find a rhythm, and we'll get better with time. But even in the best planning, um, there'll be a lot of hiccups in the system. But and also, we have a, a mailing system that I can send messages, voicemail, and emails to almost 7,000 people. Okay. We have a request to repeat the travel advisory more than one time so that people know what the new travel advisory is. Um, I... <laughs> It strikes me that there used to be um, there used to be a, a common refrain from people that they were either a distance learner or they won't or they weren't you know that some people took it 
really easily to be able to learn by distance. And some people claim that, you know, no matter how many times they took a class that way, they could never get it. And and you're faced with that situation now, delivering education via distance. How do you how do you overcome that? Well, it's gonna it's going to have to be a really close relationship with parents and caregivers. Um, kids that are on homeschool programs already, they have the benefit of a partnership between teachers and parents because they're the same person. And schools that are most successful in regular education um, are successful because there's a strong relationship between families and teachers. In this case, um, we're going to help parents to the best of our ability step to the plate so they can assist their child at home. And we'll use um, any uh, distance asset we have, the Internet, um, calling, emailing. But we also um, have to be ready for families that do not have access to those, you know, the Internet. And so we're exploring right now um, what we would need to do to help families who do not have access to the Internet to step to the plate. And so there are a number of devices available, and I'll know more today. I know that our tech office is communicating with GCI and ACS uh, to see what we can do to partner to ensure that every uh, family has access. Um, we even have some teachers that are off the grid, but um, if that's the case, then we'll give them access to their classroom only so they can work from their classroom um, at that point. So uh, we're going to try to individualize the program as much as possible, and that's why uh, next week um, teachers will be calling families to say, okay, what resources do you have? What do you need? What's your capability on the Internet? How can we communicate directly with you to facilitate uh, instruction? So we're still sort of working through all of that. But um, we, as I said, we, I first briefed the board about um, COVID-19 in early February. And I think at that time people were saying, why are you taking all this time? But my whole job is to be thinking about what ifs all the time. You know, what if somebody comes in and hurts our kids? What if we have a epidemic? What if our internet goes down? And it's a really dark place to live in because I, I think about horrible things all the time and these what ifs. But it's a process that's necessary so that I can be thinking about solutions to the what ifs. Yeah. And and the reason I survived in that place is because I'm with really great people who believe in kids and I'm around kids that have great smiles on their face. So, you know, it balances you out. And, but, um, so I think we're just going to keep doing the best we can. And I think Charles Dickens said one time in the tale of two cities, it was the best of times and the worst of times. <laughs> and I thought of that during a lot during our tsunami alert that we had about a year, I don't know, in January, a year ago, you know, and, um, you know, it was just incredible during the tidal wave in 64, everybody came together. There wasn't the kind of planning that, you know, we do now. But as a community, those who were there um, talk about it as a great time and a bad time, a great time in that the community came together and they were dealing with deaths and food shortages and lack of fuel. But when you talk to them, it was a good time. And I believe, I really do believe that whatever happens here, um, we're really going to come together. And that's our real strength living on this island. We have great people. But when the rubber meets the road, we're going to help one another and we'll be fine. No matter what happens here, we'll be okay. And and that's our strength over the big cities that we are a community already. We'll do fine. But we're, from my point of view, we have a lot of logistics we still need to work on and we're going to keep working on them. But 
it's really hampered right now because I can't really bring people together to say, all right, let's roll up our sleeves. I right. have to do it virtually, and that's hard, that's challenging. What's the biggest challenge for you, Carol? I I think like Larry says, you know, in in his job that it's it's really the our jobs to to look at the what ifs, and so from a medical standpoint, community standpoint, we have to be planning for the worst. And so we're we're struggling just to put all of those plans together and and how with our limited resources on the island, how are we gonna make all this work? And um that that really is a difficult thing and it is kind of depressing to think about. But at the same point in time, we really have done an excellent job in coming together as a group in being able to communicate with one voice over the community and um, that we are going to be able to figure out how to make this this work as best as possible. It will take everyone else in the community, not just the medical group or not just emergency services or not just the school district, to come together and um, and all fight for the same thing, which is our own health and safety. But we are limited on supplies, and that's another thing that really concerns me. And um, we are really, you know, trying to figure out how we're going to pull all this together logistically. The logistics are scary. Okay, thanks. In response to that uh, caller, DHSS strongly advises all Alaskans uh, comply with this at higher risk. For travelers returning within 14 days from the time you left an area with widespread ongoing community spread, such as Europe, China, and other countries, health three-level travel areas, you should stay home and avoid contact with other household members. Contact your employee. Don't go to work for 14 days after you get back. That's China, Iran, South Korea, Austria, Belgium, the Czech Republic, Denmark, Estonia, Finland, pretty much most of Europe. Uh, for medium risk, if you're returning home from 14 days outside of Alaska, including the rest of the United States, you should discuss this with people you work with, your employer, before returning to work. Minimize contact with people as much as possible. Self-monitor and practice social distancing. And that may mean not going to work if you cannot safely be distanced from others, especially if you've traveled in a location where community transmission is occurring. So there's many people who have asked this about other areas of the country that they just flew through. That's the official release. Talk to your employer. So, Use common Mike, sense. to just add to that, the one of the things that public health has been really making sure people want to make sure people understand is that transiting through an airport where there is a community outbreak does not count in that. So if you just fly through Seattle and you're only in the airport, they do not consider that being inside that community. I guess my question would be if you're you're getting on a plane with people who are from Seattle, though, doesn't that negate the argument that, you know, I mean, that's a question I think that somebody needs to answer. Well, and I, I think that they, public health has answered that by saying that transiting alone through Seattle is not considered high risk. I personally believe that that will change soon. So. Okay. Thank you, too, for being the, uh, the first guests on the lowdown. I know that this is going to continue for... 
probably weeks. Um, if you have a suggestion for who you would like to hear from in the community, get a, give us a call. Get in contact with us. Thanks for staying tuned in tomorrow where Mike Murray from Safeway will be one of our guests. Thank you.